Hello, and welcome back to Stalking Tomlet. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osban, here with my friend, Chavruta and Gordon. Our daf today, Masacha Bava Matia, daf Gimel, page three. Well, the first part of our daf continues the discussion that started yesterday about who actually wrote the Mishnah, which we know is a very typical sort of Gemara discussion. Uh, but then we get to an interesting uh, brisa that Rabbi Chia brings here. And one of the things that we talked about yesterday in the Mishnah is, is that when we have a case where two people claim ownership of an object and there are no witnesses uh, to help prove who actually is the owner, the two litigants are basically forced to take a shvua and then the object is going to be split. And so the question that Rabbi Chia is going to sort of want to discuss or explore through this brace is, can there ever be a case where there are witnesses and the litigants are still going to be forced to take a shvua? Tani Rabbi Chia. So Rabbi Chia taught the following, uh, the following brisa here. Manali right? So if somebody says, I have 100 dinars, I have a mana in your possession that I borrowed from you. Right? And then the other person says, no, nothing of yours is in my possession, right? In other words, you didn't borrow, you know, uh, you know, I didn't borrow anything, you, you know, I didn't borrow anything from you at all, right? So when Reuven claims, he says, Shimon, you borrowed from me, right? And you didn't repay me. Shimon says, I didn't borrow anything from you. But then witnesses come and they say, hey, Shimon, you actually did borrow, but you borrowed 50 dinars, right? You borrowed half of a mana. No, tain lo so what has happened? He has to give him 50 dinars. Reuben has to pay Shimon the 50 dinars. And he has to take an oath about the remainder, right? So here we see that there are witnesses involved, and yet a shvua still had to be taken. So this ruling, right, the, right we basically learn, is a kalva homer, right, that essentially somebody who admits to part of a claim that's brought against him has to take an oath that he doesn't owe more than the amount that he admits to having borrowed. And so therefore, what's the kalvachomer? That an admission of one's own mouth shouldn't carry greater weight than the testimony of the witnesses. So in this case, since the witnesses can testify that he owes an amount equal to part of the claim, Right. So then even more so, he's obligated to take the shvua to the rest of the claim. In other words, Adim, in a way, are stronger than just you claiming something about yourself. And so if you maybe would have to take a shvua just based on something that you said, then when it comes to Adim, you also maybe have to take a shvua as well. Utnatuna. Right. And so the Gemara says, and the Tana of the Mishnah also taught, us, us taught a similar halakha. And so now they're going to go back to and say, okay, how is our Mishnah similar to this Brisa? Right? Because our case is if two people come to the court holding this talit, holding this garment, right? Where one says, I found it, and the other one says, I found it, right? Right? Here in this case of the found item, since each litigant is holding part of it, right? Anan Sadi Demai. So it's clear to us that whatever somebody is grasping, whatever somebody is holding, right, is his. Right? And whatever the other one is grasping, that's one, that one is his. So, Viktani Nishava. 
And so therefore, this is equal to like having a witness testify because you're actually physically holding the object. So it's like having a witness. And that's why you have to take an oath. My shalotei hoda'apid gedolah mehadat edim mikalvachomer. So the Gemara says, what's the reason that we basically need to have this kalvachomer that an admission of one's mouth shouldn't carry greater weight, you know, shouldn't be greater than the testimony of witnesses? Isn't it obvious, right, that the comparison to, you know, a case of, of self-admission, right, uh, it, it, you know, it, it, to the claim, isn't this self-evident? Of course, the witnesses is better than somebody just claiming something their, themselves. So the Gemara says, Shalotamar, Hodat Pihu Rahmana Shvua Allah Right? It's necessary so you don't say that it's only in the case of admission of one's mouth that the Torah tells us that you have to take a Shvua, right? In accordance to the opinion of Rabbah. So, in other words, the point here the Gemara is saying is, you need this Kalva Homer to teach. Yes, there actually are cases where you do take a shvua even when there's Adim. It's not just because someone admitted it. It's not because of self-admission that you're taking the shvua. There can be cases even with an A that you would have to take a shvua, right? And uh, and this is different than what Rabbah said. The Amarabba, Mipanema Amrat Torah Modem, Right, Rabbi said, for well, what reason did the Torah say that somebody who admits to part of the claim has to take it food? Because we assume that a person doesn't exhibit, you know, uh, sort of somebody wouldn't like be as daring as to lie in front of his creditor, right, who did him a favor by basically lending him money. Um, and this person who denies part of the claim, right, he wants to deny all of the debt so that he could be exempt, right? And this, the, the, but the fact is he, the, the lie does not deny all of it because a person wouldn't actually do this. In other words, the point is, in this particular case, nobody would actually go ahead and deny the whole claim. So he's just going to deny part of it. He doesn't want to seem like, so brazen as to deny all of it. So in order not to seem so, you know, sort of brazen, this person wants to admit, right, to the creditor with all of the debt. Um, right? And so the fact that he denies owing part of him, right, what is he basically thinking? If he admits to him all of the debt, right? Then what's he going to do? He's going to say that he needs to pay all of it and maybe he doesn't have money to do it. So he's basically trying to sort of like evade the creditor. And so he says, okay, until I have the money, I'll pay him all of it. So in other words, he'll sort of just admit to part of it. Sabar, right? What his thought is, right? When I have the money, I'll, I'll, I'll pay it. This allows him to deny part of it. So the Torah basically comes and says, make him do an oath to make sure that he'll admit to all the debt. In other words, Rabbi says there's a case here where like it serves a purpose for somebody to be able to just admit to part of the debt because maybe they don't have enough money to pay for the full debt. He's not going to deny that he didn't, you know, wasn't lent some money, but he'll sort of pay it later on when he can pay it later on. 
So in other words, the Torah basically says to not let somebody do that. You know, the Torah says you have to take a shura. But when there's a testimony of witnesses that basically make him chayev to have to pay part of this debt, right? One can't say this explanation because this would only apply, right? When he has a myla, when he has no intention of paying the debt at all, and he wants to be totally uh, dishonest. So therefore, the Brita has to teach us this sort of kalvachomer, that the defendant still has to take an oath. It's really by a kalvachomer. So, you know, part of what, what I think this is basically saying is, is that Rabbah has this whole line of thinking about why you would maybe need to still take an oath, right? But at the end of the day, what we're sort of saying at the end is like, okay, maybe Rabbah has this line of thinking about why he would still have to take an oath, even if there aren't witnesses, right? So maybe he's sort of partially lying. He partially is admitting to it. He wouldn't be as bold as to say he didn't owe him money at all, but there's a motivation why he would only try to want to pay part of it, right? But here in this case where we have these witnesses, right, where the witnesses also make him basically because there are witnesses there and they say like, no, you, you actually do owe him money. It may not be the full amount, but it is part of it, right? We can't use this logic of Rabbah here, right? That that's only why he would be admitting to part of his claim because what we really could say is he had no intention. In this case, he had no intention of paying anything at all. He said he didn't know anything in this case. So therefore you need the Kalva Homer to teach why you would need to take a, a Shvua in this particular case, right? The case of Rabbah is very different than this case of the Brisa. I want to just go back. I, I, there's so much there's so much going on, but I want to just go back to something that you were talking about earlier, which is this premise that nobody would ever dare to to lie in front of their creditor. And I feel like, really? Okay, good. And there's something just very beautiful about that as a given. And I'm skeptical because I think we live in an era where we certainly know to be skeptical that people people can lie under any kind of condition. But the fact that the halacha is built on that premise kind of gives credit to, to people for being better than then maybe we think that they necessarily are, and maybe that helps them be better. I don't know. I, it's just something very lovely, and and it's not the only time we see this kind of given that has to be like we know people lie, but not not that far, not that badly. Um, look, we see this theme in the Gemara often, right? That there's like certain assumptions about human nature, and whenever I see those assumptions, I always wonder like. But are those still true today? Like, maybe that was true then, but not true now. So I hear what you're saying. Like, you're like, yeah, I know people who would just, like, lie. So, like, the Gemara really believes it. But the Gemara seems to really believe this. I think also, right, like, now I, I, I'm going to eat my own words a little bit. Nowadays, if you borrow money, for the most part, you're, I mean, I don't know, for the most part, Many people borrowing money in a in a casual kind of way. We've talked about this before. Is like twenty dollars for they're going to pick up a little gas on the way home, but they realize they don't have their wallet or something like that, right? Like, or they're going to buy food, you know, but it's just a little food. I'm not talking about people who are who are big in debt, and I'm not talking about buying a home or a car, things that take a mortgage. But but the little lending that we do, 
maybe people wouldn't lie or maybe they would, but we're not talking about the same kind of loans that they're really talking about here. And then those kind of loans, you know, where you actually sign documents and so on, very often nowadays, that's with a corporation, that's with a bank, that's with a money lending system, you know, a credit union. Um, and I don't know, maybe people really would not lie, would not dare to lie to, let's say, if they borrowed money from just an individual, you know, a, rel a distant relative or even a close relative, maybe you wouldn't. I mean, I wouldn't, but I don't know that, you know, I think nobody thinks that they would unless they're in that circumstance either. I like that the Gemara presumes that nobody would. Yes, exactly. All right. What do you want to talk about here on this staff? Okay. I'm going to pick up where, the you know, you, you ended on this point of the Kalvachomer. I'm going to address it a little bit further. Um, because what happens is the Gemara brings in the support. Like, what's the rationale here? And we're still talking about witnesses versus somebody, you know, kind of guilting themselves, confessing into to, to what they've done wrong. And where that kicks in, we're going to see. It has some real practical application. So there's a mission in, in Kritut, um, where it says as follows, So you have wit to, two, it just says two. Two means witnesses, right? There are witnesses who say, you, you, our guy here in the case, you ate chalev. Chalev is that forbidden fat. But it's forbidden fat that carries with it a punishment of karit, meaning it's not just, it's much worse than some other violations of kashrut, which we'll get to, I know, eventually. But right, the idea of this forbidden fat is that it's quite a grievous uh, violation. And so he says, I did not eat it. And now you've got, you know, the person defending himself claiming he did not eat it. Do we believe him? Do we not believe him? We have two witnesses who say that you did it. Do we believe them over him, right? Rabbi Meir Rabbi Meir says that he's liable to bring an offering. And the Chachamim, the sages, the majority view, say that he's exempt. He does not have to bring an offering. So the question is, you know, where are they get? What's the argument between Rabbi Meir and the Chachamim? I'm a Rabbi Meir. He says, Rabbi Meir says to the sages, right? If we had, we know that in principle, you can have two witnesses who will put a person away with a death penalty, meaning they're even going to go so far as on two, on the statements of two different people, you could actually put a person to death. And that's a very severe penalty. But once you accept that you could do that with the, with the testimony of witnesses, can't you also rely on witnesses to for a much lighter penalty as well? Meaning bringing an offering as compared to a death sentence is really a much lighter kind of requirement. Why not let the witnesses require, you know, bring about the case where the the person who is said to have eaten the chalev would in fact have to do so. So the sages say to him, They say to him, What if he says, ah, I did it on purpose. I ate that chalev intentionally. Then wouldn't he be exempt? Meaning there's a general principle, and this is background information that we need to know, right? That you don't bring an offering for something for a sin that you do intentionally, because the whole idea. <laughs> Excuse me. It, the whole idea of this kind of khatat, right, is it's like an apology. And so if you do it intentionally, I guess, you know, you can feel bad afterwards, but the, the exemption to this kind of korban is exactly 
is exactly that. You did it with intent. So you don't bring, uh, oops, I didn't mean to do it because because you did mean to do it. So the rabbis, the sages here say, so in that case, he's going to be exempt. And since you don't bring, because you don't bring an offering for something that you've done intentionally, then the idea of witnesses kind of making him guilty here is not relevant because they can't prove whether he did it by accident or unwittingly or intentionally, right? So the fact that you could say that he, meaning he, the perpetrator, could say that he did it intentionally, or he does say he didn't sin at all, right? But the testimony itself doesn't have enough bearing on the potential case where he could, in, in fact, incriminate himself to the extent that he would say that he did it intentionally. Okay, that's one way of looking at it. Ella, the Gemara has another way to go about this. Malafif, what about his mouth? Meaning, this is your data, what you talked about, the admission of his mouth, right? Meaning, again, he's he, what he says, do we take that against the testimony of two witnesses? asha. So the position here is that by virtue of his own admission, you know, that would make him liable to build to bring a guilt offering, not a not a sin offering. Asham Korban. So the idea here is that you've got a case of a robber, right? Who he now is gonna have to bring a guilt offering. That's gonna function in some way as atonement. The witnesses, however, if they've testified that he was a thief, right? And he says he's not, then well then he doesn't have to bring a guilt offering. The testimony itself is not enough to bring about the need for a guilt offering. So this goes back to this dispute. So the Gemara explains the guilt offering is the same, asham, hainu, karban. It's an offering, it's any offering. And the moment you have that dispute between Rabbi Meir and the sages as to whether testimony of witnesses can require another person to bring a karban, a sacrifice at all, well then there you have it. That's gonna, it's gonna bring us back to that dispute. The fact that it's a guilt offering as opposed to a sin offering, suggests the Gemara, is kind of irrelevant. If the question is, can testimony um, put a person in a place where they are obligated to bring a sacrifice or or not? And that does seem to be the crux of the dispute between Rabbi Meir and the sages. And the Gemara has another suggestion. And, and the Gemara does this. This staff does this for a few, a few different... Uh, um, possible refutations, right? So again, it says, and here, I, I don't want to spend too much time inside in the interest of time, but it says straight up, a little bit inside, right? It gives us an example, and we all remember this from not that long ago in Babakama, right? Where the idea is that somebody can admit, you know, with his mouth, he can admit to what he has done to the extent that he would be obligated to pay Chomesh, that one-fifth extra that comes as a penalty for a false oath. Okay. So, meaning, again, I'm just giving you these different examples where it comes in this whole discussion of, of where what one says, how what one says has bearing on the degree to which the testimony can even be taken seriously or as an override from what he said. You might think, I might think, that witnesses would automatically counter what a person has to say, right? We establish all kinds of things by the testimony of witnesses. To say that, no, a person might actually be able to counter witnesses based on, again, has he, does he claim that he's done a sin intentionally? Right now that can nullify 
court doesn't change the testimony. It nullifies the potential punishment for him because the terms, the tables have kind of shifted. The terms have changed. Um, okay. I think I'm going to stop here. We're getting towards the end of the daf, and we have more to do tomorrow. So I, I think it's interesting. I think that this question of, you know, at some point we're still trying to get to the truth, and at some point we shifted from that question of what is really true to have, what do we call it, like the procedural effects within a court. And I'm not saying that the truth is irrelevant here, but the the digging to see when does what one says about himself, what what, what a person says about himself as compared to what the witnesses say about him, like it, it's a really interesting kind of uh, potential contradiction in terms. It's just very interesting, I think. Well, I, I also find it interesting because usually when a Calva Homer is presented, it's like, here's the Calva Homer. And really there's a lot of discussion here that like, the Gemara is not liking this Kalva Homer or this, you know, idea that there could be a Kalva Homer here. Right. They don't Remy like the Homer. <laughs> right. Remy Mayer's position that you could, because you could put people to death with testimony, that means that surely you could also ha- establish other things like a karma, like a sacrifice on testimony. I think his logic is sound, but the problem is that there's so many other potential factors to make it impossible to establish a, a sacrifice on the witness's testimony, that it almost, the Kalvachomer almost falls by the wayside. And that is, I agree with you, very unusual handling of a Kalvachomer. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank is review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Revenue Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hydra website. Let us know what you thought about this stuff on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.